Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is great to see you, many of you here in the room, as well as those of you that are worshiping online with us. We are thrilled that you chose to worship with us today. I know that some of you are here for your very first time, whether you're in the building or, or logging online. We would love the opportunity to be able to share with you some information about the church, answer questions, all of that kind of thing. And so if you've not already done so, we would love for you to take the time to fill out a connection card. You can do that with a card there in front of you, or you can do it online on our website. Either way, we'd love to be able to reach out to you, give you some more information about the church, and kind of connect with you in that way. Um, I am Alan. I'm one of the pastors and one of the elders here. And uh, we are just, like I said, thrilled to be worshiping with you today. We as a church family... Uh, have been and are walking through the New Testament together as we read a chapter a day, five days a week, so that we can read the entire New Testament. And so at the bottom of your uh, worship guide, at the sermon notes there at the back, it shows you what our reading plan is this week. We are hitting the book of Revelation uh, this week. We have two books. We've, we've read every book of the Bible so far. Uh, I mean, sorry, of the New Testament so far. We have two left. We'll read Revelation and then we'll jump into the book of Matthew and finish out uh, the New Testament together this year. So I'm looking forward. Next week we'll start a four or five week series on uh, the book of Revelation. I hope that you'll plan to be a part of that. But this week we're actually looking at 2 John. It's not too often uh, that a pastor can actually preach uh, the entire book of, 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 the, of the Bible because uh, many of the books have long chapters and a lot of chapters. But 2 John only has... Uh, one chapter. And uh, so we're going to be looking almost at the entire uh, text of Second John. But before we get to it, if, uh, well, let me say this. If you've got a Bible with you, whether a hard copy or on your phone, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open that up to Second John. It's almost at the very, very back of the, the Bible, right before Revelation. It's hard to find sometimes because it's only one chapter. It's only on one page. But I'd encourage you to go to Second John. Um, but before we uh, read, oh, and also there are Bibles in the chairs under you. If you need a Bible, uh, feel free to use one of those. And if you would like to take one home as a gift from us, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, before we read the text, so I want to kind of set up 2 John. Well, like, what is 2 John about? Who wrote 2 John? And who is 2 John written to? Um, and uh, you may be wondering, well, Alan, uh, you just told us who wrote it, right? You're saying, who wrote it? You said Second John, so didn't a guy by the name of John write it? Well, yes, actually he did. John, one of the 12 disciples, brother of James. Uh, in the book of John, he's referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved, and uh, John had a great influence in the life of, of uh, the 12 disciples. He was one of the three closest that Jesus spent the most time with. And then John wrote the gospel by that name, he wrote three letters, uh, referred to as 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and then he actually wrote Revelation. And of course, as I say he wrote that, we, we, we realize that all of the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gave the words to John to write, but John was the human author that put the words on, uh, I would say paper, but uh, uh, papyrus, I guess. So uh, anyway, so this is uh, John that wrote it. <clears throat> Who did John write 2 John to? If you would look at the top there, you'll see that it says it's written to the elect lady and her children. And as you study about the elect lady and her children, you'll see that there are two primary thoughts on who that is. Uh, first of all, to an actual lady, uh, maybe someone who hosted the, the uh, church in her home and to her biological children. Or the other option is perhaps it was written to a church, and he's referring to the church as an elect lady. And, and there are several reasons why it's very likely that it's not written to a specific lady, but actually to a church. Uh, many scholars would, would agree that it was probably written to a particular local church, and here's why maybe he used the verbiage lady. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever God's people are referred to, oftentimes they're referred to uh, in, in the female, uh, feminine side as far as being um, a, a woman, uh, and then also really, especially when it starts talking about being the bride of Christ. Maybe you've heard of the Bride of Christ that is in reference to uh, the church. Also, in 1 John, whenever John writes 1 John, and he references other uh, believers of, in the faith, he referred to them as children. And so whenever it says to the elect lady and the children, there's precedence in John's writing that he uses that term to refer to believers. 
And then also as you read through 2 John, you'll see lots of plural uh, word, word forms that would indicate that he's writing to a larger group of people than maybe just one lady and her children. But either way, we know that the content of 2 John encourages us to do the very thing that my sermon title is, which is walking with Jesus. And, she, and John uses the word walk three different times in, these short, uh, in this short chapter. And whenever he talks about walking, you'll see that he talks about walking in truth, walking in obedience, and walking in love, which is actually my three points this morning. Whenever we use the phrase walking in truth, walking in obedience, walking in love, that reference the word walk means to live in or live according to or to live your lifestyle in this sort of way. And so we are to live in truth. We are to live in uh, obedience. We are to live in love. And I already threw my three points out there. And the reason I did is because I want you to see that in many ways, when we walk through this text, you're going to see it's kind of all it's, it's all connected. Uh, you can't have truth without obedience. You can't have obedience without love. And the list kind of goes on from there. You can't really see where one begins and the other ends because they all blend together. All too often in the American church, in the American church, we want to define discipleship in, in a linear fashion. We want to define discipleship as the American church oftentimes is about being about a destination. And so when we think about discipleship, all too often we think, okay, discipleship means I know these things. Uh, discipleship means I believe these things. And discipleship means that I behave this certain way. It, it, it seems to point to if I complete this class, then I'm a disciple. It's almost like I need to get from point A to point B. Point A is not knowing Jesus and point B being the perfect Christian. And all I've got to do is follow these five easy steps and I'll get to point B. That's kind of how the American church seems to look at it. It's the idea that maturity in Christ oftentimes becomes defined by our achievements, if you will, and our outward behaviors. When in reality, discipleship is that sort of thing and then some. Discipleship is actually more about being focused on a direction instead of a destination. Because if I'm focused on a destination, then I think someday I'm gonna arrive there. Like I'm gonna achieve perfect discipleship. When I think about discipleship being a direction, that means I'm headed towards discipleship and I realize that it's not really a linear process, point A to point B by steps one, two, three, four, and five, but it really point A to point B may take me through point five and then point three and then point two and then point one, kind of like what Howard said a minute ago when he jumbled up those numbers. So maybe that's why he jumbled up those numbers. And so the reality is discipleship is a constant ongoing process without an endpoint on this side of eternity because are we ever going to be a perfect christian before we get to heaven that would be a big fat no we will never be a perfect christian rather we are headed in the direction of loving jesus more and more and so maturity in christ is better defined by a movement in the right direction now i want you to hear what i'm saying here and what i'm not saying i'm not saying that first option is completely wrong the idea of headed to a destination, the idea of, of uh, knowing things, believing things, taking classes, taking studies, those are not wrong. It's just that that's not the complete picture. We need both the destination and activities, but there is also the aspect of ongoing, circular kind of nature of growing in our faith. I say all that to say, as we now read John, or actually I should say Second John, Let's see how this is all kind of meshed together. And he's not saying, first you got to do this, then you got to do this, and then now you got to do this. Rather, these three points just kind of work together, and you can't do one without the other without the other. So let's look at 2 John. And you'll see on your notes it says 2 John 4 through 11. That's not chapters 4 through 11. There's only one chapter, and so it's verses 4 through 11. So let's look at 2 John verses 4 through 11 together. Um, verses 1 through 3 is kind of the introduction, um, and then 12 through 13 is kind of the greetings at the end. So the body of it is verses 4 through 11. It says this, John says, I rejoice greatly 
to find some of your children walking in the truth. So there's that walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So there's walking in obedience, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it, walking in love. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Son, Father, and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Perhaps you saw the word abide pop up a couple of times. That's another word that John uses quite a bit, that we are to abide or to walk or to dwell in, and we are to consistently kind of marinate in these three things, in truth, in obedience, and in love. And so as, as you see on the back of your sermon notes, they are listed in linear fashion, one, two, three, but in reality, they should kind of be spotted all over the page. And you'll see as we walk through this text, even when I'm talking about walking in truth, you'll hear me talking about love. And even when I'm talking about obedience, you'll hear me talk about truth. And so anyway, just want you to kind of see that it all blends together quite nicely. Here at our church, we use a phrase quite a bit. We encourage everyone in our congregation to be a disciple make disciples and be the church to the glory of God. And in order for us to be that kind of disciple, then we need a few things to put into the mix. And that is we do need the truth or correct belief. We do need obedience or correct behavior. And we do need love, which means we need to belong to a community, to a church family, to a body. And that's why this Sunday morning gathering is so important. That's why our hope groups are so important. That's why serving together is important because we need to do all of this in the context of Christian community. So let's walk through the notes. And again, it's not really linear in fashion, even though I'm presenting it this way. But the first thing I want to highlight is that we are to walk in truth. Look with me at verse 4. John says, I rejoice greatly to find that some of your children are walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So we see at the outset that there's no question whatsoever that God commands us as followers of Jesus to walk, to abide in, to dwell in this idea of the truth. And I want you to see that in verse 4 it says that we are to walk in the truth. On my notes it says walk in truth, but I really should have put the word the there because it's very specific. We are to not walk into any kind of truth or my truth or a truth. We're to walk in the truth. Now you may be thinking, well, what is the truth? And as I, that question came to my mind, I, I, this week I flashed back to John chapter 18. We're not going to flip there, but in John chapter 18, Jesus is on trial. It's not a very good trial. It's kind of set against him, but he's on trial and he's in front of Pilate. Do you remember that Pilate's talking to Jesus and then Jesus references the truth and then Pilate says, well, Jesus, what is truth? And in our culture... Whether we act like we care or not about it, there is the question, well, what is truth? I think there's at least three ways that the world typically defines truth. And here are these three things. And if we're not careful, we will define truth this way as well. The first way the world would explain truth is reason. Like, I, I'm going to think about it. Like, I'm going to try to put it together. I'm going to try to put these puzzle pieces together and, and how I fashion the puzzle pieces, that becomes my truth because it's what I can reason or rational, make rational to me. Another way that we can define truth as the world is tradition. I know we live here in uh, College Station and tradition is kind of a thing here, um, but uh, the reality is in our own lives, if we're not careful, even if we don't realize it's a tradition, things become a tradition very quickly. 
I remember when I was a little bit younger, the question whenever you would go to a church service was, well, do they have a traditional service or do they have a non-traditional service? Well, the reality is every service is a traditional service. It's just which tradition is it, right? The way we always do things. And so if we're not careful, we define my truth by the ways I've always done it. Well, I've always voted that way. I've always thought that way. I've always had this thing. I've always done it this way. That must be the right way. That is my truth. And then here's the third way truth is defined by the world, and that is experience. Well, that's my experience, so it must make it factual. That's how I feel about my experience, so that must make it true. So if we're not careful, we will begin to reflect what the world says is truth, and we'll think it's something we rationalize, something we experience as far as tradition and just our experience in life. And our culture will carry across the idea of, well, that is my truth. That is your truth. Is there such a thing as my truth and your truth? Like, two plus two for me is four, but for Scott, two plus two is seven. That's his truth. I'm sorry, Scott, I had to pick on you, sorry. No, the reality is we can't have a my truth and your truth, right? But our culture says there's no absolute truth. And you ever notice that when a person says there's no absolute truth, they're absolutely certain that there's no absolute truth. It doesn't make sense, but that's how our culture works. Now, what did Jesus say about the truth? Pilate asked him what is truth, and he didn't necessarily answer it in that setting, or at least it's not recorded in the book of John. But earlier in John, Jesus does tell us what the truth is. John 14, verse 6, maybe you've heard this verse before. Jesus says, it's one of the I am statements, one of the seven times in the book of John that he said something about himself. Jesus answered the question, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at that middle word. It's not a truth. I'm not a good truth. I'm a good thought. Like, I'm a good moral teacher. Like, I'm a good example to follow. Like, I'm a good role model. No, Jesus says, I am the truth. And so whenever we say we need to walk in the truth, that means we got to walk in Jesus and what Jesus says and what Jesus does. But all too often, we're walking in what Alan Pittman thinks. Or you fill in the blank. <laughs> Maybe you're not walking in what Alan Pittman thinks, but you're walking in what you think or what you've experienced. We got to get back to the reality that if we want to be a disciple for Jesus Christ, we must center ourselves in God's truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ himself and the things that Jesus says, the things that Jesus teaches us. Look down in verse 9 of 2 John. In 2 John verse 9, it says this, whoever abides in the teaching of Christ. So to walk in the truth means to walk in the teaching of Christ. What is the teaching of Christ? The teaching of Christ is correct, true doctrine that we find from Scripture, from his teaching directly in the red letters that you would read in the Scripture as well as the black letters that you would read in Scripture. The teaching of Christ is doctrinal truth. There is an absolute truth, and that absolute truth is recorded right here. All truth is God's truth. It's not made up truth. It's not my truth, your truth, the world's truth. It is the truth. The teachings of Christ, the truth that we're to follow is the gospel. And the gospel is not just what saves us as far as a conversion, like believe that Jesus has died for our sins and been raised to new life, which is the gospel. But that gospel is also the very thing that empowers us to live a life of ongoing obedience to Christ. So the gospel isn't just our starting and ending point, but it's the continual process of growing to become more and more and more like Jesus. So here's the question. I've spent a whole lot of time talking about what the truth is and what the world would say about the truth and what the truth really is. Why am I so... Um, uh, spending so much time here, why is it important that we are grounded in the truth of God's word? Why does that matter? Here's a couple of reasons why it matters to be grounded or to walk in the truth of God's word. The first one is this. In order for you to live out the truth, you must know the truth. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to start living the truth today because 
Alan said we ought to live the truth, and, and then I say, well, what does the Bible teach? And you're like, I have no clue. I haven't read it. I haven't studied it. I, I don't really know what God's Word has to say. Well, for us to live out the truth, to walk in truth, we must know the truth. So I encourage you to be grounded in God's Word. And there's a couple of ways that we can be grounded in God's Word. Personally, we have to ground ourselves in God's Word, and we also should do it corporately or together as a church family. So I want us to look real quickly, how can I be grounded in God's word in both sides of that? The way that we can personally be grounded in God's word is to actually study God's word. So whenever I say we're doing a reading plan, and I'm saying we're reading a chapter a day, five days a week, it's not just so we can check it off our list and say, well, I've accomplished that, or whatever Bible study method you may be using. It's not just, look, I did that, I did that, I'm a good little Christian. No, we study God's Word so that we can read, be exposed to God's truth, to understand God's truth, and then live out God's truth. So study God's Word. Love God's Word. Be transformed by God's Word. Don't just read it, but let it soak into who you are and then begin to live out God's truth. In order for us to do that, though, we have to be grounded in God's truth. So I encourage you that if you're not reading God's Word uh, on a consistent basis, that you make a decision today, I will begin to read God's Word seriously. And maybe you go, you know what, there's only, what, six weeks? Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm cutting the year shorter than it is. Ten weeks left in this year? Uh, I think that's about right. About ten weeks left in this year? I'm going to spend these next ten weeks reading through the book of Revelation and the book of Matthew, the bookends of the New Testament with my church family. If you're not already reading God's Word, maybe that's where you need to start. Now, there's all kinds of techniques for studying God's Word, all kinds of acrostics. I heard one last week that I really, really liked that a church down in Galveston is using. It's called Abide, and each letter stands for something. I've used the SOAP method before. Each of those letters stand for something. There's the HEAR method. Each of those stand for something. There's the OIA method. There's all kinds of methods, but here is the deal. You're like, I have no idea what you just said, Alan. Well, here's what I'm saying. When you study God's Word, whatever technique you use, make sure you include three parts for sure. Study God's Word. Study it. Don't just read it. Don't just pass by it. Don't just read every other word, but study God's word. And then because you've studied God's word, make sure you interpret it correctly. There's not a million interpretations to God's word. There's one. Make sure you study it so you can interpret it accurately. And then third part is to go out and apply it to your life. So we need to be grounded in God's word. We can do that personally by studying God's word, loving God's word, living it out. But we're also called to be grounded in God's word together as a church family. So how do we do that? Have you ever thought about church programs and events? Like, why do we gather every Sunday morning for uh, worship service? Why, why do we have hope groups? Why do we have Bible study classes? Why do we have uh, discipleship groups? Why do we have all of these things? They serve a purpose. And so whenever we come together, we're grounded in God's word in a lot of different environments, but here are the primary ways, primary scenarios where you can be grounded in God's word as you come together as a church family, and that is on Sunday mornings when we come together to study God's word, I hope to give us a good foundational base for the truth of God's word. So Sunday mornings worship services are vital. Don't just come to hang out because it's the thing to do. Come to be grounded in God's word on top of being with your church family. And then the other way that we really focus on that is in our classes and our Bible studies that take place. The purpose of those classes, the purpose of those Bible studies is so that we have a good foundational level understanding of God's Word. Don't sacrifice either the personal or the together aspect of studying God's Word. We need both of those. All right. So first reason that we are to ground ourselves in God's Word is so that we can live it out uh, by knowing God's truth. The second reason we should uh, focus on uh, being grounded in God's word is this, and it's actually found in these verses. The second reason is to keep us from being swayed by false teachers and deceivers. Did you see that in 2 John? In 2 John, go down to, um, let's see, uh, verse 8. It says, watch yourself. Uh, oh, no, so verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who don't confess that uh, Jesus has come in the flesh. And so he's saying, ground yourself in God's truth so that you're not swayed by false teachers and deceivers. 
I've often heard this illustration used by preachers and probably have used it myself a few times and maybe you've heard it before. And I tried to research it on the internet this week and I first thought, oh my goodness, this isn't true because it starts, a preacher starts off, Tim Challies is going, hey, I don't know whether uh, this thing is true or not, so I investigate it and it really is true. So under his authority, I'm assuming this is correct. So here it is. Do you know how federal agents learn to identify counterfeit money? They learn to identify counterfeit money not by studying counterfeit bills. They learn to identify counterfeit money by studying the real deal so that they can see it, smell it, touch it. I don't think they taste it, but they, can, they, they have tangible ways that they know that money inside and out so that when they are presented a fake bill, it stands out as counterfeit because they know what the real thing looks like. This world is throwing counterfeit beliefs about truth in general and about who Jesus Christ is. And maybe they've knocked on your door before. And if you're not careful, you'll buy into the lies that are handed down to you because you aren't grounded in God's word. In order for you to sniff out the fake stuff, you've got to know the real stuff. You've got to study God's word. So that's why we need to study God's word. The thing I want to point out is the danger of these deceivers the deceivers that he speaks about, it says in verse 7, they don't confess that Jesus came in the flesh. In other words, the reason these are false teachers, antichrist deceivers, is because, not because they have a slightly different interpretation of something that's not all that important, they are messed up on who Jesus Christ is. The definition of a false teacher means that they don't know Jesus. They spread false understandings about who Jesus is. The danger in their teaching was they didn't understand Christ. I do want to give us a word of caution, though. In this day and age, if we're not careful, we can think that anyone that doesn't believe cookie-cutter just like me is a false teacher. Don't label somebody a false teacher just because they differ from you on a few things that may very well be pretty important, but they're not critical to salvation. I loved what this commentary writer had to say. So I'm going to quote it. It came from my ESV expository com commentary, and here's what it says. We must not regard everyone who disagrees with us as false teachers, but... We must resist any who distort the biblical understanding of the person of Christ. Reserve your labels of false teachers for those who are truly false teachers. But don't ever get fooled into believing something about Jesus that's not true. So, here's the deal. We've talked a lot about knowing the truth. But knowing the truth doesn't really matter until we begin to respond by obeying the truth. I mentioned the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate back in John chapter 18. Well, a verse before, uh, the reason Pilate said what is truth is because Jesus said to him, everyone, he says to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And the word listens to my voice means more than just hearing it. It means responsive to my voice. So whenever Jesus speaks, we as followers of Jesus must obey him. So the second point on your outline says this, walk in obedience. Look down at verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So the word obedience isn't there, but walking according to his commandments is the same thing as walking in obedience. So that's how I phrased it. Walk in obedience. Walking in the truth must involve obeying God's uh, commandments and God's teachings. Maybe you've heard this verse from Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's pretty simple. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So there it is, obeying the commandments. But to obey the commandments, you've got to know the truth. And, and the reason we do that is because we love him. So there's uh, uh, truth, obedience, and love all wrapped into one verse. Jesus says that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. So here in verse 6 of 2 John, here in John chapter 14, verse 15, we see that we're to walk in obedience because it's tied to our love for God. Now, 
John, all throughout 2 John, I know it's only 13 verses long, but all throughout 2 John, and then also in First and 3 John, John is really focused on this idea, and actually in the Gospels as well, of the commandment to love one another. In fact, John records it in John chapter 13. When Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we are to love one another, which is one of the commandments that Jesus gives to us. But whenever John says obey or walk in the commandments, he's talking about all of God's commandments. And the reason that we obey his commandments is because that's one proof of our salvation look down in verse 9 everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of christ in other words those who don't walk in obedience towards christ do not have god but whoever abides in the teaching whoever walks in obedience does have both the father and the son he's saying if you are not consistently obeying god if you're not on a regular basis obeying his teaching then you don't truly have salvation. Now, we're not saved by our obedience, but because of our salvation, obedience is a part of the equation. Salvation comes one way only. Salvation comes from an understanding that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness of my sins because my sin has made me dead to God, Like I am eternally forever separated from God, a holy, perfect God, because my sin and my rebellion against God brings out his wrath against me, and I'm eternally separated from him. Doesn't sound very exciting, but it's true. But the good news is this, that God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus came as God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life that you and I can't live. He never sinned against God, never deserved death, never deserved what he received, but he was crucified on the cross in order that he could take our sins on his shoulders, on his back, so that he could sacrifice himself on our behalf that our sins might be forgiven by what he did on the cross. But the good news is that three days later he was raised to new life, overcoming sin and death and the grave. And that is the only way that we experience salvation is by trusting in faith in God's grace that he gives to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in the tomb, and in the resurrection. That is the only way for salvation. But a life that has been transformed by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ responds in obedience to his teachings. And so John says in verse 9, if you're not abiding in Jesus and his teachings, you don't have God. You don't have a relationship with God. But if you do obey him, then you have the Father and the Son. Now, I, I have written down here, how is obedience and loving one another connected. Because what it's saying is that we walk in obedience when we love one another. John emphasizes that. So the question is, how are those connected? Like we said, it's circular in nature. There's all kind of enmeshed together. How is it that obedience and loving one another is connected? I believe that one of the big ways is because God gave us each other to love so that we can help one another live a life of obedience. So as I love you and you love me, then we can lovingly encourage and prod each other to love Jesus more and follow him more closely. Consider this text, one that you're probably familiar with, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It describes how the love for one another should stir us up to follow Jesus more closely. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need each other. So I'm going to say some words here that I would encourage you to hear all the way through. Do not take a sound bite. Listen to the whole thing. 
Hebrews 10 says, let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of, but let us encourage and provoke each other to love and good works. If you are isolating yourself right now, I in love say it's time to stop it. We cannot continue to isolate ourselves from other believers. I understand that some of you that are watching online right now, we've talked and I know that there's legitimate health reasons and concerns that prevent you from maybe being in the building today. But I would encourage you that if that's your tendency to not be able to be in the building for health reasons, and perhaps there's some ways to kind of work through that. And what I encourage you to consider, not only the option of live streaming, but what would it be like if maybe you could join us on Sunday mornings more regularly and, and wear a mask. We have several of our people that as I'm preaching right now that are wearing a mask as I'm preaching. And so maybe you are, are, are convicted, like it's time for me to get back in the building with my church family and I'll wear a mask. And those of us that are here that don't normally wear a mask, whenever I see somebody walk in the building and they have a mask, let's put that thing on and, and, and love them well so they can come in the building and feel safe if there's a need for that. We also have uh, the fellowship room, which in some ways is where the kids can run if they need to, uh, but it's actually a socially distanced, uh, a physically distanced place, and maybe you can come back in the building with a mask and be in here in the service with us. Maybe you can come back in the building and go to the fellowship room and be a part of that. Now, even as I say that, this is the flip side I need to communicate. There are some of our family, church family, that are being very consistent and they're not getting, you're not getting out in public. You're not going out in public. And it's not that you're just not coming on Sunday mornings. You're not going anywhere right now. And if that's where you're at and that's where God's leading you to do so, we fully support you. But I'm just saying this. We need each other. It's time for us to gather again on a regular basis so we can love one another well to encourage each other to live out our faith. All that being said, it's important for us to find genuine ways to connect with other people. Whether they're in the building or whether you're not. There's ways that we can and should connect with each other to love one another well. Because if we don't, then we can't encourage each other to, to live in God's truth. We, we've got to do life together. One of the biggest ways that we encourage each other to walk in obedience is a thing that we call D group and the D stands for discipleship so it's just a discipleship group and for the last couple of years I've been a part of a discipleship group and let me share with you kind of the heart and thought process behind our D groups or our discipleship groups uh, these D groups are made up of three to four people of the same gender and those individuals during the week on our own and in other settings we are marinating in the truth of God's word. We're reading God's word together so that we can marinate in the truth to know it and live it out. And I'm doing that on a personal basis throughout the course of the week. And then once a week we come together in our group and what we do together is that we encourage each other to live out the truths we've been learning. Ask how we're doing and pray for one another. We hold each other accountable not just to know God's word but to actually live out in obedience God's word. And so if a D group or a discipleship group would be of interest to you, I definitely can tell you how to jump in one. And you can stop by and talk to me or send me an email, contact the church office. We would love for you to be able to do that as we seek to walk in obedience. So this morning, so far, we've looked at walking in truth and we've looked at walking in obedience. We've already talked about love some, but let's look a little closer at it. The final point on your notes is walk in love. Look down at verses 5 and 6. It says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. There's the commandment, love one another. And then he describes in verse 6 a little bit more about it. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So, uh, and then it says, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you walk in it. We are to walk in the commandment of loving one another. At the end of verse 6 in the ESV, it says, so that you would walk in it. The it that it's referencing here is love, loving one another. We're to love one another. And John in these verses says, hey, this is not a new commandment. 
Like you've known about it from the beginning and you're like, okay, so how is that? What's he saying? The way that John says this is not a new commandment, you've known it from the beginning, is because Jesus instructed us to love one another. Uh, Jesus based that on the Old Testament, so in the Old Testament we're told to love one another. And then all throughout their Christian life, they've heard we are to love one another. And John says, this is nothing new. This is not rocket science, but I want to remind you that we've got to walk in love by loving one another. Let's think for a minute, how does the world define love? I don't know. I love Dr. Pepper. I love the Cowboys. I love whatever. I love 80s music. Like, we, we use the word love flippantly all too often, right? And it's not really love. It's just something we like to do. But if we are describing genuine love, if we're not careful, we can make it all about our emotions. We can make it all about sentimentality. We can make it all about what I personally get from it. The world likes to define love in a self-centered fashion. But what's God's definition? Look at verse 6. John defines love for us. He says, and this is love. Here it is. Love is that we would walk according to Christ's commandments. You can't separate love for God from obedience. Obedience and love walk hand in hand. You can't obey God and not love others. I'm sure you're familiar with this text. I think it's going to be on the screen. Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 36, Jesus is presented with a question. It says, teacher, he's talking to Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I mean, there's 617 of them, right? Which one? In verse 37, and he said, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, he says, Jesus says, that the way we obey all the law, the way we obey all the prophets, is if we love God, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but we are to love God and we are to love people. So I encourage us, as we know and live out the truth, as we not only know and live out the truth, uh, we also walk in obedience, let's not lose sight of the fact that all of this is connected to this idea of loving God and loving others. As I talk about walking in love, we see that we should walk in love because love is defined by obeying God's commandments. We, we see that we're to love God, we're to love one another. And so there's kind of a clear picture of why we should walk in love, but there's also another aspect of walking in love that I'd like for you to look at. Look with me at 2 John, verse 7. Now, before we read verse 7, look at 5 and 6. 5 and 6 is all about the commandment to love one another. Verse 6 finishes, so that we should walk in loving one another. And then the very next verse starts this way. For, F-O-R, the reason we do those things is because there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world. So let's just pause right there. One reason that we're to love one another is because it actually, loving one another, actually helps us guard against the deceivers that are out there trying to get us to go somewhere against God's word. How could that be? Well, if you love me and I love you, then we lovingly hold each other accountable to follow the truth of God's word, right? And so what happens when you see me not obey God's word, you come to me and say, hey, Alan, that wasn't exactly the way that's supposed to go down. Be careful there. Be on your guard. I know that in our D group, that kind of conversation happens all the time. Not always aimed at me, but at all three of us, we'll, we'll say, hey, be careful. Like, don't think too much on that because if you're not careful, you're going to go down a slope that you don't want to go down. 
So I think that John makes it clear that one of the motivations, one of the results of us loving one another well is that we're actually helping to guard each other against the deceivers that are out to get us to go in the wrong direction. Accountability to each other helps us to steer towards following God instead of away from God. In other words, we're to love one another well. We're to love enough. Uh, we are to love one another enough. That's too many words that ramble. We're to love one another enough to speak the truth to each other, to keep a brother or a sister from going down the wrong path. Sometimes we think, well, Alan, isn't that the job of the pastors and the elders? Like, aren't they supposed to, like, uh, guard the sheep and make sure the sheep aren't going the wrong direction? Yes, but we as a church family are to do the same thing together as well. So here's some ways that we can love one another well enough to guard each other in the way we follow or don't follow God's teaching. And here's some ways. In community, the way we as a church body can do this together. We, we've got to be together. I, I mentioned that if you're isolating yourself, it's time to be back. Because we need you and you need us. And the primary way that we can do that is in our hope groups. In our hope groups, we have groups of usually between 10 and 20, closer to 15 adults in a, in a group, and they meet in a home during the course of the week. The primary purpose is to do life together, to study God's Word together, to encourage each other, to pray for one another. Many of our people are signed up for a hope group, and to be honest with you, many of us are not signed up for a hope group yet. I encourage you that if you're not in a hope group, that you would say yes today and sign up for a hope group. In fact, there should be somebody at the registration table right out there when we dismiss. You can go over there to the table and say, hey, when's the groups and when can I sign up and put me in a group? Because we were designed to do life together. And if you're not in a hope group, you're missing out because one of the primary ways that we love one another well enough to guard against deception is to be in a group together. But that's not the only way that we love another, each other well enough to protect from uh, the deception. We, we should pray for one another. We should meet each other's needs. We should contact each other throughout the week. And you're like, I'm doing that with my Hope Group members. Great. But I think we should do that with other members as well. Like when a person's name comes to your mind, don't just say, oh, that's cool, I thought of so-and-so. No, pull out your phone, call them, text them, uh, send them a message or go by their house or whatever the case may be. We need each other. Let us prod one another together to follow Jesus throughout the course of the week. A couple weeks ago, I, I heard about another friend of mine who had passed away from covid and as I think about the pandemic, I think about all of the things that have happened with the pandemic. Health-wise, financial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As bad as those things are, you want to know what I think probably is the biggest casualty of the pandemic has been? I think it's civil relationships with one another. We were separated for a while. And I, when I say we, I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about people in the world, specifically America. We were separated for a while, and then we started spouting off our ideas, and somebody else started spouting off their ideas, and we weren't together. We weren't doing life together, and we could say things uh, when we're not face-to-face -face that we probably wouldn't say face-to-face. -face. And, and as a result of that, we became fragmented. We became isolated. We became separated. And relationships have struggled and I believe that too many Christians around this country have stopped loving other brothers and sisters in Christ and we're spouting things off that we ought not be spouting off against each other guys and gals we can do something about that in college station we can do something about that in living hope let us love one another well let us serve one another well let us get this done right to love one another to the glory of Jesus Christ I guarantee you this, when the world sees what's going on and we're not loving one another well, the world runs the other way. I will completely leave this anonymous, but I had a chance to sit down with a friend of mine from high school that I'd not seen in 30 years, came in town for the ball game, so he and his wife and I got together, and as we talked, 
I asked him about a particular church in another city, okay? I asked him about another church, and, there, and here was his response. There are more people in, church, in city X that no longer go to church because of pastor so-and-so at, at another church. And what he was saying was this. That pastor is running everyone else down. He is the only one that holds the truth to God's word. Everyone else is a fake, a false teacher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's so hardcore and so angry and points the finger at people. And the people of that city are running from church because of his impact. How sad is that? The truth is that all of us, if we're not careful, can fail at this loving one another well. But if we love one another well, the world will see that we are his disciples by our love for one another, right? And they'll want to be a part of that. Living hope through almost 24, well, over 24 years. Start to say almost 25. Through over 24 years of history, Living Hope has always been a, known as a church that loves one another well. I've experienced it. I've seen it. I've heard about it. I know it's the truth. But here's the deal. How can we press on into that even more so so that we can love en- each other well enough that, that we can serve Live out God's mission together as a church body. What do you need to do to help us live that out more deeply? It could be that God's calling you to give up something or sacrifice something in order to make this happen. So here's the deal. This morning we've looked at walking in the truth. We've looked at walking in obedience. And we've looked at walking in love. And I want to sum it up by reading this one phrase sentence from a a commentary that I found this week that I think does a great job. Deep affection for one another, talking about in a church body, deep affection or love for one another that results in uh, being pleased in one another's obedience creates a thriving church community where people care for, help, and encourage one another seeking our joy and obedience. To God. Let me read it one more time. Deep affection for one another and resulting pleasure in one another's obedience creates a thriving church community where people care for, help, and encourage one another, seeking our joy and obedience to God. Let us be that kind of church body. Let me lead us in prayer.